Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Sunday, August 9th, 2009. At 3 a.m., the skies over Metro Detroit were streaked with lightning, vibrant flashes of white punctuated by driving rain and the loud drum of thunder. Even though it was the middle of the night, Doreen Landry was in the living room of her Chesterfield Township home. Her husband was in bed, sleeping through the sound and lights of the storm. Her son, Matt, he was up and about. Matt was planning to go see his girlfriend, who would be getting home from work around 3.30 a.m., Matt and his mom were chatting when his car alarm started going off. They exchanged a hurried love you, and he went out the door to quiet the car before it woke the neighbors. Doreen didn't know this was the last time she'd see or speak with her beloved son. Doreen watched from the window as 21-year-old Matt drove away in his green four-door Honda. Matt arrived at his girlfriend Francesca's house without incident. In the morning, when the pair awoke, Fran wasn't feeling her best, and she asked Matt to go to the drugstore for her. He happily ran the errand, and the pair hung out at her place. Around 1.30 that afternoon, he walked down the block from Fran's to see his friend Chris. He'd been friends with Chris for nearly seven years, and Matt told him that he was working on his car, trying to fix the alarm, but he was overheated in a long-sleeved button-up shirt. Chris offered him a gray T-shirt, It was an A-line undershirt. And listeners, I hate the term wife beater, but that's what these kinds of tops are commonly known as. With the thin t-shirt on, the two men parted ways, and again, Chris didn't know this was the last time he would see his friend. He also didn't know that the shirt he'd loaned him would end up as evidence in a murder trial. It's just after 2 o'clock when Matt tells Fran that he's going to run home to change clothes and that he'll be back to have dinner with her. She could expect him around 5 o'clock. The pair kissed and said their farewells. Fran didn't know that Matt will not return, and she will never see him again. That afternoon and evening, Fran calls Matt repeatedly, but his phone goes straight to voicemail. His mother, Doreen, has a similar experience. Despite making multiple calls to his cell phone, she cannot reach her son. When no one has seen or heard from Matt by Monday morning, Doreen goes to the local police, in her case, the Chesterfield Township Police Department, to file a missing persons report for her son. The desk sergeant says that perhaps Chesterfield shouldn't take the report. After all, Matt was last seen in Roseville, which is more than 13 miles south of Chesterfield. Roseville police are better equipped to look for someone missing from their own area. Chesterfield police did enter Matt Landry into LEAN, the Law Enforcement Information Network, which means that if any officer has contact with Matt, they will know that he's not in any trouble, but he's being looked for. Again, Chesterfield police strongly encouraged Doreen to make the drive to Roseville and file a report with that department. And while Doreen Landry is trying to track down her son in Roseville, police in the neighboring community of East Point are looking at an incident report. It's a strange one. On Sunday afternoon, around 3 p.m., a report came in of a suspected carjacking. A citizen dialed 911 when he witnessed two men assault a third man and force him into the trunk of a green four-door vehicle, possibly a Honda, outside of a sandwich shop on Gratiot Avenue. 
The citizen called 911 to report the assault out of concern for the safety of the man who was forced into the trunk of the car. He described the attackers as two men, one white and one black, and their victim was a white male. Workers in the sandwich shop were also witness to part of the assault and kidnapping which took place outside of their business. The citizen was on the phone with 911 dispatchers as they attempted to follow the green car, but they lost them in traffic. In a quick note for those not from the area, Gratiot Avenue is a busy six-lane and sometimes eight-lane boulevard that runs from the heart of Detroit north into the far suburbs. It is a well-populated, busy, and well-traveled road. It's considered a main artery of the community. Gratiot is dotted with a variety of businesses, from law offices to fast food restaurants, medical practices, and retail shops. It's easy to understand how a civilian, like the one who reported what looked like a kidnapping, could lose another car in the often heavy traffic along Gratiot. Now, Doreen Landry arrives in Northville, not just with a photo and description of her son, but she has his phone records and bank statements. The last call made from Matt's phone was at 4.15 on Sunday, then the phone was powered off. His bank records also show unusual activity. Doreen handed the detective a copy of Matthew's bank statement, which showed three large withdrawals. That on Sunday, August 9th, 2009, just after 5 p.m., someone used Matthew's card to withdraw $100 three times in a row from an ATM inside the Sunoco gas station at Seven Mile and Hayes in Detroit. When asked if Matthew was known to frequent this area, Doreen admitted, yeah, sometimes her son went into the city to purchase drugs. And listeners, keep in mind, this incident happened in 2009, long before Michigan opted to legalize marijuana. After speaking with Doreen Landry, who calls everyone she could think of in an attempt to find her son, two of Matt's friends drove into the city to the Sunoco station. They wanted to see if it was Matt who'd been there. Instead of finding information about their missing friend, they learned that a man known to the store owners had come in to use the ATM at the time Matt's card was used. The Sunoco station was a combination gas station and convenience store, and it was owned by Fuad and Musa Rahami, who told the pair that a kid they knew, named Ihab, was in using the ATM and that Ihab was trouble. They'd known him from around the neighborhood, and he'd been kicked out of their business more than once for getting out of line. The term they used for Ihab was bad news. When law enforcement shows up to make inquiries, the store owners are helpful to police and offer up video showing Ihab using the ATM machine at the same time the charges registered from that machine to Matt Landry's debit card. The Rahamis tell police what they told Matt's friends, and they recall that Ihab went to the dumpster as he was leaving, that he stopped, stripped off his shirt, and threw it in. When detectives check out the dumpster, they find a shirt which video from the store confirms was the one Ihab was wearing when he came in. The shirt is taken into evidence. Now, when police showed up at the Sunoco station to talk with the owners about this Ahab person, they also had another new crime on their minds, a bank robbery in Harrison Township, several miles north of where the alleged kidnapping of Matt Landry took place. On Monday, August 10th, The bank robber dragged a woman from the bank at gunpoint, but abandoned her to flee in a green four-door car. Video from the robbery shows a man who bears a striking resemblance to Ihab Maslamani. Now, it's important to note all the different jurisdictions dealing with this case. 
Matt Landry is from Chesterfield Township, where he lived with his parents. His girlfriend and best friend live off Kelly Road in Roseville, which is where Matt was last seen alive and where his mother filed the missing persons report. Then there's the incident that appeared to be a carjacking on Gratiot in East Point involving a green four-door vehicle. Then we have Matt's ATM card being used at a Sunoco station in Detroit near Seven Mile and Hayes. And finally the robbery of the Flagstar Bank in Harrison Township on Monday, August 10th. Now, we need to talk about what will become one of the most important pieces of evidence in this case, Matt's cell phone. It was turned off Sunday late afternoon, but before it was deactivated, the phone pinged a cell tower on the east side of Detroit. This set Detroit police, accompanied by officers from East Point, Chesterfield, the Macomb County Sheriff's Office, Roseville Police, as well as sniffer dogs on loan from Dearborn police, to work. On Tuesday the 11th, police learned that the rough edges of Detroit's east side, Seven Mile at Hayes, this neighborhood they were searching became downright problematic later in the day. Cops were mocked, catcalled, and dozens of false tips arrived at 911 as the locals hoped to get the heavy police presence out of their neighborhood. The officers regrouped and decided they would return early the next morning when they would be less likely to be disturbed by or to disturb the locals. On Wednesday, they started at 7.30 a.m. with three canine units going in and out of abandoned homes in the area. Listeners, Detroit is a great city, but this is one of those very depressed areas of Detroit, and in 2009, it was dotted with burned out, boarded up, and abandoned homes, as well as many empty lots. On the morning of August 13th, Detective Blarick and Lieutenant Noblesdorf entered a burned-out home on Madeline near Monarch Street, just west of the intersection of Seven Mile and Hayes. In what was once the living room of the house, they find the body of a white male on the floor. The man was wearing an A-line t-shirt, jeans, and flip-flops. He was clearly deceased and appeared to have been shot in the back of the head at close range. You could describe the shooting as execution-style. While they could see the bulge of a wallet in his back pocket, they opted against pulling the wallet to check ID and instead stepped outside, waiting for the coroner and crime scene technicians to do their work and preserve any evidence. Unfortunately for the family of Matt Landry, the press is already waiting outside. They'd been lurking in the area since the search began the day before, and news that human remains were found and that they matched the description of Matt Landry spread like wildfire. The good news is that police already have their man, or in this case, men, identified. They just need to bring them in. Two teenagers, Ihab Maslamani and Robert Fat Daddy Taylor. Ihab was captured after an attempted carjacking outside of a big box store in Roseville, but Taylor, who has other outstanding charges, is still at large. One challenge facing the prosecution of this case is that Maslamani and Taylor are both under the age of 18. Would these two youths be tried as juveniles or as adults? We'll be right back. When we left off, a body had been found in the living room of a burned-out house on the east side of Detroit. The remains, dressed in a gray sleeveless undershirt, flip-flops, and jeans, had clearly been there for a couple of days. There was insect activity on the body. It appeared that the victim was killed by an execution-style gunshot to the back of his head. Investigators did what they could to preserve the crime scene for the coroner's office and evidence technicians. 
Despite the officers who found the body doing all they could to protect the scene for technicians and the coroner, the bullet used to kill Matt Landry wouldn't be found until months later when an investigator pried it out of a wall at the abandoned home. DNA testing was required to make sure this was the bullet that killed Matt Landry, and not just a stray bullet that happened to be in the same place. While the DNA came back as a match to Landry, it was not a strong match as the DNA was degraded. As they're processing the scene, the city of Detroit reached out to Roseville Police. The green Honda they'd been looking for? It had been found in the backyard of an abandoned home on Rossini Street, less than a mile from the Sunoco station, where police believed that Ihab Maslamani used Matt Landry's debit card to withdraw hundreds of dollars from his account. Inside the Honda, they located a hand-drawn map which linked Matt Landry's Honda to the bank robbery in Harrison Township that took place on Monday. Police have piles of evidence, and they have a series of bizarre and violent crimes that took place in a two-day period, starting with a call from a citizen about what looked like a kidnapping from a sandwich shop parking lot. There's a lot for police to get through with multiple crime scenes spread over two counties. The first step in both the bank robbery and the murder case is to have Ihab assessed to make sure he is competent to stand trial. As doctors and counselors examine him, police look over the grim list of crimes that 17-year-old Ihab committed both with 16-year-old Robert Taylor and then by himself. His crime spree started on Sunday when Matt Landry stopped at a local sandwich shop to get a bite to eat. There he was approached by Ihab and Robert. He was assaulted and forced into the trunk of his car at gunpoint. They drove him around, got the pin from his debit card, and stole several hundred dollars from his bank account. The two men then drove Matt Landry's car, with Landry in the trunk, to a crack house where they purchased and consumed crack cocaine. The house where Landry's decomposing remains were found was close to the drug house frequented by Taylor and Maslamani. After the murder, Robert and Ihab parted ways, with Ihab holding on to the murder weapon and the keys to the Honda. On Monday, Ihab drove north into Harrison Township, where he robbed a bank and attempted to take a hostage on his way out. After the robbery, he abandoned the Honda along Rossini Street in Detroit. On Tuesday, Ihab Maslamani attempted to carjack a man outside of a Roseville business, which led to him being taken into custody. During Ihab's arraignment, he wore a bloodstained T-shirt, likely sullied from his own injuries sustained during the failed carjacking, and he spit on the floor of the courtroom. According to an August 14, 2009 story in the Detroit Free Press, Maslamani had a long criminal history, including juvenile drug charges and robbery. He had no family to stand with him as he was arraigned. Maslamani's childhood could best be described as challenging. His mother brought him from Lebanon when he was 10 years old, and when she decided to return to Lebanon, he and his sister stayed in the Detroit area, going in and out of foster homes. The longest he was at any foster home was three years. Then the foster mother developed medical problems and had to surrender custody back to the state. Ihab took the separation hard, but of course he didn't let that show. As a teenager, Ihab had been in trouble at Denby High School, caught letting non-students into the secure building, and when redirected, he attacked the assistant principal and threatened to kill staff members. And while they found Ihab quickly, Robert Fat Daddy Taylor was harder to locate. According to a story in the Macomb Daily, they tried posting wanted flyers at local businesses, 
but the businesses declined because cooperating with police in that neighborhood is bad for business. They spoke with Taylor's mother, who said she hadn't seen her son in three months since he ran away from home. They spoke to Taylor's uncle, who could provide them no information. Then police turned to Crime Stoppers and put up a cash reward for information on his location. Eventually, on August 24th, Taylor turned himself in to Detroit police and was transported to the East Point Police Department for processing. The only thing we know for sure that he said to police was, quote, I didn't kill that man. As part of the investigation, police pieced together the last hours of Matt Landry's life. Matt left his girlfriend's house and stopped at the sandwich shop where he was assaulted by Ihab and Robert. The youths rode their bikes to the area from Seven Mile and Hayes and didn't want to have to ride the bikes all the way back again, so they were looking for a car to steal. Once they overpowered Matt and forced him into the trunk, they drove off. They may not have realized that their crime was witnessed and someone was attempting to follow them. While police were en route to the location of the kidnapping, they literally drove past Matt's Honda, which was going the other way. The first stop on the Sunday crime spree after they kidnapped Matt was the ATM at the Sunoco station, where Ihab used Matt's debit card and PIN to access his bank account and get cash. Then they drove to Eastland Mall in nearby Harper Woods, where Ihab treated himself to some new clothes. After shopping, the men drove the Honda, with Matt still in the trunk, over to a known drug house near Seven Mile and Hayes, where they purchased and used crack cocaine. Listeners, Matt Landry was alive for several hours after his kidnapping that afternoon. They could have let him go at any time. Unfortunately, it was probably after dark when the two teenagers removed him from the trunk and marched him into the burned-out, abandoned house at gunpoint telling Matt to get on his knees before firing the fatal shot into the back of his head. Ihab pulled the trigger, but Robert Taylor was with him and did nothing to stop the murder from occurring. Then he left with Ihab, leaving Landry's body to rot on the floor of the abandoned house on Madeline. Maslamani and Taylor would go on trial for murder in September and October of 2010, respectively. Now Maslamani was facing 18 charges for his three-day crime spree, which included carjacking, bank robbery, a second kidnapping charge since he held a woman at gunpoint and forced her out of the bank before releasing her and fleeing the scene in Landry's green Honda. Robert Taylor was facing far fewer charges, but both youths would be tried for murder. At Maslamani's trial, the Good Samaritan who called in the kidnapping he witnessed took the stand. He provided a horrifying account of the assault against Matt Landry. According to Lawrence Wada, Ihab and Taylor tried to force Landry into the trunk of his car. When that didn't work as Landry was fighting for his life, Ihab dragged Landry to the driver's side of the car and struck him in the face repeatedly. While Ihab assaulted Landry, Robert Taylor was on his cell phone and looking around to make sure they weren't being watched. Maslamani's attorneys tried to mitigate this damaging testimony by attempting to get the witness to admit that the vehicle shown to him in photos may not have been Landry's vehicle. And I find this distraction on the part of the defense an interesting choice. How often do you see someone being assaulted and forced into the trunk of a car? It's highly unlikely that there were multiple assaults like this one on that day. Not surprisingly, Maslamani's attorneys tried to paint Robert Fat Daddy Taylor as the one who shot Landry. And at Taylor's trial, his attorneys would try a similar tactic, blaming the shooting on Ihab. 
Maslamani, 17 at the time of his crimes and 18 at the time of the trial, would receive a life sentence. Taylor, 16 at the time of the crime and 17 at trial, also received a life sentence. Even though it's most likely that Maslamani is the one who pulled the trigger ending the life of Matt Landry, Robert Taylor's role in the assault, kidnapping, and cover-up allow him to be viewed as a co-conspirator and therefore equally responsible for Landry's murder. Matt's mother spoke briefly at Robert Taylor's sentencing. Did you seriously think you would get away with it? You picked the wrong person. You picked the wrong son, the wrong brother, the wrong uncle, and the wrong friend. You knew right from wrong, and yet you did it anyway. You had plenty of opportunity to let him go, and he asked you to let him go. But you didn't let him go. After the trial, Maslamani expressed no guilt, shame, or remorse for what happened, saying, quote, Murder is not something I committed. I'm hurt, too. There's false allegations on me. And while the two teens are sentenced to life in prison without parole, they don't know it yet, but a change in the law is coming that will allow them to have their cases reviewed. In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court forbade mandatory life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders. In 2016, the court said those sentenced to life without parole as a minor could challenge their sentence. Maslamani's attorneys filed multiple appeals in his case, as did attorneys for Robert Taylor. Maslamani, who has had multiple infractions while in prison, would take his appeal all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court. His case was looked at in 2014, 2016, and again in 2021. Each time, the court affirmed that he was deserving of his sentence of life without possibility of parole. His lawyer posited that Maslamani had a painful and abusive childhood, which should have been a mitigating factor in his sentencing. Neither Taylor nor Maslamani would find relief from their original sentence of life without parole. As of this writing, Maslamani is serving his sentence at the Oaks Correctional Facility in Manistee. Robert Taylor is at the Kinross Correctional Facility in the Upper Peninsula. And Matt Landry? He's at the Resurrection Cemetery in Clinton Township. Production assistance this week provided by Olivia Holmesley, with audio production by Bill Burt. Sources for this week's episode include a Freedom of Information Act request from the East Point Police, as well as stories from the Macomb Daily and the Detroit Free Press Archives. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast.